Today we are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus the Mediator of a New and Better Covenant or a New and Better Testament. And this is teaching number four. It's part two, and it's called Jesus is Fully Human. Um, we've been looking at in Hebrews chapter one that Jesus is fully God, and we've been looking in Hebrews chapter two that Jesus is fully human. And the reason I believe the author opens up with Jesus being fully God in chapter one and Jesus being fully human in chapter two of Hebrews is because in order to be a mediator between two people, you have to fully represent both people. And so in order for Jesus to be the mediator of a new covenant, in order to fully represent God, he has to be 100% God. That's Hebrews chapter one. And in order to fully represent humanity, he has to be 100% human. That's Hebrews two. So we always have to remember in Hebrews that the writer is writing to a Jewish audience about Jesus being the mediator of a new and better covenant or a new and better testament or a new way of relating to God, not the old way of the law of Moses, but the new way of the grace of Jesus. And so everything that the writer is writing in Hebrews is all about the new covenant. It's all to convince the Jewish reader whose family heritage had been in the law for 1,500 years. They themselves had been in the law of Moses for 60, 70 years or more and some less. But their whole way of relating to God was by the law of Moses, by Leviticus, by Deuteronomy, by Exodus, by sacrificing animals, by going to the priest and the high priest. And this whole new way of relating to God is being presented to them by the writer of Hebrews. So every chapter in every verse somehow points to the establishment of this New Testament of grace, not books, but the blood of Christ, the eternal forgiveness that's ours in Christ, the eternal cleansing of sin that's ours in Christ, compared to the temporal forgiveness and the temporal cleansing of sin under the law of Moses. So in this teaching, Jesus is fully human. Hebrews 2.17 says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Now, we're looking at six reasons Jesus became fully human. We're looking in Hebrews 2, 1 through 17. And last week, we looked at the first reason, which is Jesus became fully human to bring salvation. We looked in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. That was part one. And tonight, we're going to look in Hebrews 2, 6 through 17. We're going to look at the other five reasons that Jesus became fully human. And the second reason is this. Jesus became fully human to bring restoration. That's in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. And the writer of Hebrews quotes from Jewish scripture. And the reason the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Jewish scripture to prove that Jesus is fully human is because he's writing to a group of people who were very familiar with Jewish scripture. So he's using their scripture as evidence to convince them that Jesus is the son, that's Hebrews chapter one, he's the son of God, and to convince them that Jesus is also the son of man, that's Hebrews chapter two. Son of God and son of man are both titles in the Jewish scriptures of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the promised one who would come. All right, so let's read about reason number two, Jesus became fully human to bring restoration in Hebrews chapter two, verses six through 10. And the writer writes, but there is a place, all right, he's referring here to Jewish scriptures. He's referring to Psalm 8, 4 through 6. But there is a place where someone, that's David, who wrote Psalm 8, 4 through 6. But there is a place where someone has testified. And here's what Psalm 8, 4 through 6 says, which the author of Hebrews is quoting. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? a son of man that you care for him. And what we see in this first part of Psalm 8, 4 is that God has a passion for humanity. David is not questioning whether God cares for humanity here, whether God loves humanity. 
David is pointing out the passion of God for humanity. And when you go back and you read Psalm 8, before you get to Psalm 4 through 6, David's talking about the universe, the, the creation. And as he looks at creation, he's, he's amazed at creation. And then he looks at humanity and he says, who are we that you would, you would care for us like you do when you're the creator of this amazing universe? But you have a passion for humanity. You have a passion for people. You care deeply for people. You love people. You have compassion for people. That was as amazing to David as the stars in the sky, as the universe that he was looking into. And he saw the amazement of the universe. And then he looked at humanity and he said, wow, and you have an amazing passion, God. You have an abundant passion, a deep passion for humanity. All right. So the writer is quoting from Jewish scripture. And he's telling us that Jesus became fully human to bring restoration. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from Jewish scripture to talk about this need for restoration that Jesus became fully human to bring. And he shows us by quoting Psalm 8, 4 through 6, that God has a passion for humanity. And then we look in verse 7. He's still quoting Psalm 8, 4 through 6. And David writes, which is being quoted by the writer of Hebrews, you made them, that's humanity, a little lower than the angels. Now, this is God's position for humanity. The angels are amazing creations of God. They do the work of God. They do the bidding of God. We have Gabriel and Daniel. Uh, We have Gabriel in in the early life of Jesus coming to Mary to say, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. He comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth. You're going to give birth to the forerunner. So Gabriel was this unique angel of God who was carrying God's message, Michael the archangel. So angels were, were, were big, important pieces or creations of God that God used to communicate to people and to carry his message to people. It was the angels that appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai and were the mediator between God and Moses when God used the angels to give the law to Moses. Just like the angels were used by God to give the law to Moses, Jesus was the mediator of a new covenant. The angels were the mediator of the old covenant to give the law to Moses, which became a law of condemnation. Jesus became the mediator of a new covenant, which is a covenant of grace and a covenant of salvation. So he's talking about humanity here, and he's saying that God has a passion for humanity. God's placed humanity just a little lower than the angels. And then he says about humanity, and again, he's quoting Psalm 8, 4 through 6, and this is Hebrews 2, 7. He says, you crowned them, God, you crowned them, humanity, with glory and honor. And this is God's placement of value on humanity, that God truly does value people. God values individual people. He values families. He values nations. God values humanity. He's placed upon us. He's crowned us with glory and honor. We matter to God. We're important to God. We're we're extremely important to God. So God is passionate for humanity. God's position for humanity is just a little lower than the angels. God has placed tremendous value on us. And then we find out in verse 8 is God put everything under their feet. This is God's purpose for humanity. And this is a reference back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where, where God, after creating Adam and Eve, he put Adam in charge and, and Eve in charge over all of his creation, that they would rule over creation, that they would be stewards of creation. He, they had authority over creation. And so they had a vital role to play. Their purpose was to know God personally, to walk in a love relationship with God. And then flowing from this love relationship with God, then they would rule over creation. And then let's continue to read through Hebrews chapter 2. We're still in verse 8 now. 
In putting everything under them, that's humanity, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So there was nothing that God created that mankind did not have the authority to rule over and to steward. So in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, this was the writing, the the time of Hebrews when it was written, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. And, and it's the same true today. Everything is not subject to humanity anymore. When Adam sinned, when Adam ate of the tree, humanity plunged into death and humanity plunged into darkness because of the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, which then left everything in need of being restored to its original purpose. That's why Jesus became fully human, to bring restoration. Through Jesus, God is going to restore everything to where it was before the fall of man. Remember when God created everything, he looked at everything and said it was good. Well, now we look at everything and there's death, there's disease, there's destruction, there's crime, there's evil, there's fear, there's worry. I mean, things aren't good like they were in the Garden of Eden. God's going to restore everything to where it was before mankind plunged into death and darkness when they chose to walk away from a relationship with God. When Adam chose to eat of the tree, he died. Remember, God said, if you eat of the tree, you will die. When Adam ate of the tree, he died, but God in grace came and clothed them in animal skins, which means an animal died in Adam's place. Adam tried to clothe himself in fig leaves, Adam and Eve. They tried to do something to clothe themselves before God, whereas in grace, God took an animal, had an animal sacrifice for their death, which is the first picture of grace in the Bible, and it's the first picture of Jesus ultimately dying our death, and they were clothed in animal skins, which we're clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. Through his sacrifice and faith in him, we're clothed in his righteousness. But when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve fell into death and into darkness, and then all of humanity fell into death and into darkness. And darkness means, what is life all about? Why am I here? Is there a God? Does life have purpose? And the people ask these questions all the time. What's the meaning of life? Solomon was given the assignment to go see if there's any purpose in life apart from God. And with the wealth given him by God and the wisdom given him by God, Solomon comes back and he writes a book called Ecclesiastes and he opens up with his conclusion. And his conclusion is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. He's saying that apart from God, life has no meaning. That would be like a fish. Apart from the water, The fish has no meaning. The meaning for a fish is in the water. The meaning for us is us and God and God and us. And so Jesus came to restore everything back to its original order and to bring us into relationship with God. And that's ultimately going to happen when we get through the book of Revelation and and God brings the new heaven and the new earth where there's no more death, no more darkness, there's no more disease, there's no more sickness. There's no mourning, there's no, there's no crying, there's no hurt, there's no pain. It's everything the human heart longs for is going to ultimately be restored. And Jesus coming and establishing the new covenant is such a major part of the restoration that God is doing through Christ to restore humanity to how we were created by God. And so we see that humanity plunged into death and darkness in the Garden of Eden so that nothing Nothing subject to humanity anymore because of their fall, because of our fall. But then Jesus becomes the hero of the human race. Jesus comes to restore everything to its greatness, everything to its goodness, like God designed it. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. Now, what does that mean? Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is fully God. He's the Son of God. He's greater than the angels in Hebrews chapter 1. Well, now we see in Hebrews chapter 2 that this same Jesus, who's greater than the angels in Hebrews 1 and is the Son of God, meaning he is God himself, 
Suddenly in Hebrews chapter 2, we see he's lower than the angels. He's become human now. Humanity was made just a little lower than the angels. And now we see Jesus, who has now been made just a little lower than the angels for a little while. Now it's talking about his humanity. And for the 33 years Jesus lived as a human, that's the little while, he was fully human. And then after his death and crucifixion and resurrection, he's now crowned with glory and honor, this verse says. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Jesus took our our sin upon himself. He took the death that was due us, and he paid our debt in full. Just like humanity in the verses that we just read is crowned with glory and honor, well, Jesus is crowned in glory and honor, and his glory and honor is in the death that he died for us. We honor Jesus because of the death that he died for us. We're, we're wowed by Jesus. We're amazed by Jesus because of the death that he died for us. Look at what Jesus did for us. But we see Jesus, verse 9 of chapter 2, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Look what Jesus did for us. So that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. Grace is everything God has done for us in Christ to restore everything. There's nothing that we do that can bring restoration to the human race. But God has done it all in Jesus, and it's his unconditional love for us. It's his unmerited kindness to us to bring salvation, to bring restoration, to rescue humanity from death and to rescue humanity from darkness. That's why Jesus is the light of the world. That's why Jesus is talked about as the bread of life. He came to bring life to the dead and light to those in darkness. And it says here that Jesus tasted death for everyone so that he might, meaning having tasted death for everyone, which takes us to Romans 5, 12 through 21, which in Romans 5, 12 through 21, we see that through Adam, through the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, sin spread to all humanity. The consequences of sin is death. The result of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Death flowed to everybody. So, so sin started with Adam, and it spread to all humanity so that we're all born spiritually dead, and we're all born in, born in spiritual darkness until somebody tells us why we're on this earth and who God is and how God has revealed himself to us in Christ. We're in darkness and we're, we're spiritually dead. Jesus came to bring life to the dead and light to those in darkness, and he did it by grace. And that's what we find out in Romans 5, 12 through 21, is that through faith in Jesus, we're given the, the gift of righteousness, we're given the gift of salvation, We're given the gift of eternal life, and it's all by grace. He did it all. So when Jesus became human, he became fully human to bring restoration, to restore us to our original purpose and to restore earth to its original purpose. All right, well, let's continue reading on in Hebrews 2 in verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's restoration, that's bringing us to our original purpose, Through faith in Jesus, we're we're restored to our purpose, all right? So, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So, we see here that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. Jesus is the one who has achieved salvation for us. There's nothing we can do to bring ourselves to life There's nothing we can do to bring ourselves out of darkness to light. There's nothing we can do to bring restoration from the fall of Adam. Jesus did it for us. He's the pioneer of our salvation. He's the one who's achieved salvation for us. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is writing about. He's explaining how Jesus is the pioneer of salvation, how Jesus, through the new covenant, through his blood, through his death, has pioneered for us has made a way for us to experience salvation. So Jesus is the pioneer of their salvation. He's become perfect through what he 
suffered. So how did Jesus become perfect through what he suffered? Because he was already perfect. I mean, he had no sin. So that's not what it's referring to here. The perfection of Jesus through what he suffered here is Jesus experiencing life in all of its pain as a human so he can relate to us, so that he could become compassionate to us, so that he could feel our pain and feel our hurt and feel our heartache. He, he became the perfect high priest we're going to find out in, in context that he became perfect in the sense that now I, I know what it's like to be Brad. I know what it's like to be you. I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to hunger. I know what it's like to be abused, to be attacked. I know what it's like to be abandoned. And I know what it's like to be betrayed. He became the perfect one who could relate to us in our humanity because he became completely human. And in becoming completely human, then he could restore us to our purpose for which God created us. So reason number two is Jesus became fully human to bring restoration. And then reason number three is Jesus became fully human to bring sanctification. This is found in Hebrews 2, 11 through 13. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Let's break this down a little bit. The one who makes people holy is Jesus, but the one, that's Jesus, who makes people holy. So Jesus makes people holy. We can't make ourselves holy. How can an unholy person make themselves holy? We can't, but Jesus did. Jesus took our unholiness upon himself at the cross, and he gives us his holiness. He gives us his righteousness. The blood of Jesus forgives all of our sins, and the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, and it's an eternal covenant that his blood is established. So when we place our faith in Jesus, we experience eternal forgiveness for sins and eternal cleansing from sin, which means we have been made holy. We have been cleansed from all sin. We have been completely forgiven of all sin. But the one, that's Jesus, who makes people holy, we contribute nothing to making ourselves holy and righteous before God and forgiven before God and cleansed or purified from all sin before God. We contribute nothing. All we do is by faith trust in everything Jesus contributed for us on the cross. Both the one, Jesus, who makes people holy and those who are made holy, that means to be purified from all sin by the blood of Jesus, forgiven of all sins, and cleansed from all sins. Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, after Jesus provided purification for sins, he sat down. Purification, that's what it means to be made holy. Jesus has provided the purification of our sins, and we've trusted in what Jesus did for us, and now we've been made holy by what he did for us. So being holy before God is not an ongoing work. We don't make ourselves holy continually before God. Jesus did it once and for all. That's why it says he sat down. Whereas the work of the priest during the book of Leviticus was always going on. Jesus's work was complete and it was done fully and forever for us. And now through faith, we're made holy before God. So both the one, that's Jesus, who makes people holy, and those who are made holy, that's those who place their faith in Jesus, are of the same family. Now, what's the family? It's not talking about the Christian family in context. A lot of people, when they read Hebrews 2, they they think it's referring to the Christian family. It's referring to the family of humanity here, and we'll see this in context. It says, both the one, Jesus, who makes people holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family, the human family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, which means this. Jesus was not ashamed to become human. Jesus stepping out of heaven to earth, and we read about that in Philippians chapter 2, was not ashamed to take on humanity. Jesus was not ashamed to die for our sins. Jesus is not ashamed of humanity. He loves us. And that love that Jesus has for us is seen at the cross. The love that Jesus has for us is seen when his blood was shed at the cross to forgive us of all sin and to cleanse us from all sin. So we're of the same family. When Jesus became a little lower than the angels, 
he became a part of the human family is what that's saying. And he wasn't ashamed to become a part of the human family. And then verse 12, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, to show that Jesus was human. He says in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. Now, what's that referring to? Well, the assembly here is referring to the Jewish synagogue that Jesus would have grown up in and the different Jewish synagogues that he, would, he visited. So when you read like Luke chapter 4, Jesus had been out visiting the synagogues. So he was singing the praises of God as a human in the synagogues that he was in. And then when he's in his hometown synagogue, in Luke chapter 4 records this, Jesus gets up, he reads out of Isaiah, and it's the scriptures in Isaiah that talk about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, who it was going to be the time of God's favor or the time of God's grace. And Jesus reads those verses, and he sits down, and he says, these verses have been fulfilled today, meaning I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. And the people who were in Jesus' synagogue, his hometown synagogue that he grew up in, initially they were amazed, it says, at the grace that was flowing from the lips of Jesus, which shows what kind of person he was, very graceful person. But then they began to turn on Jesus so much so that they tried to push him off a cliff right outside the synagogue, and they tried to kill him. What the writer of Hebrews is doing here is just showing that Jesus was human. He was in the Jewish synagogues. He was singing praises in the Jewish synagogues. And he quotes Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two to show that. And then he quotes Isaiah 8, 7, the writer of Hebrews, and he says, and again, I will put my trust in him, the I being the Messiah, the I being the Christ, the I being Jesus, meaning I will put my trust in God. So you have Jesus in this being made a little lower than the angels in context of the family of the human race, participating in the synagogue services, also trusting God as a 100% human being, even though he was 100% fully God. As a human, he trusted in God, and, and that was how Jesus lived. I'm trusting in God today. I'm trusting God to guide me. I'm trusting God to be with me. I'm trusting God to give me wisdom and to give me understanding and to give me strength. So Jesus lived his life as a human, trusting God every day of his life. And then he says, in Isaiah 8.18, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Isaiah 8.18, again, to prove the humanity of Jesus. He says, and again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Now, this word children here is directly relating to humanity. I'll show you that in the next set of verses. So, it's just proving that Jesus related to humanity, that, that Jesus lived with human people as a human. He worshiped with them. He trusted God as a 100% full human being. Remember, why is the writer of Hebrews going into so much length and and so in-depth to prove that Jesus was human? Because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and a mediator fully represents God as God. That's Hebrews 1, and he fully represents humanity being as being a human, and Jesus was completely human. And the writer of Hebrews is is seeking to provide scriptural evidence for his Jewish audience, as well as for us too, who is now reading this, that Jesus was 100% human. Therefore, he's qualified to be a mediator to fully represent humanity and as God to fully represent God to bring this new covenant to humanity to, to restore all things, and to bring sanctification. And sanctification is being made holy before God. Sanctification is not a process. It's not progressive. We hear that a lot, progressive sanctification. We don't make ourselves holy at all. We don't progressively make ourselves holy. That's an impossibility. If the blood of Christ doesn't sanctify us, then we can't be sanctified. We can't be made holy. We don't progressively become more and more holy. Now, the Bible does say in First Peter, uh, Peter tells the Jewish people who are living in a Roman world to be holy for God is holy. Now, the context of that is really important. He's talking about in your lifestyle, 
Jewish believers in this Roman world that you're living in, let your lifestyle be different. Be holy. Be, be different is what he's saying. There. That's what the word holy means. It means to be different, to be set apart in how you behave and how you act and how you communicate. So that if someone asks you about why you have such a hope, then you'll be, you'll be ready. Be, be prepared to give them an answer of, of why you have such a hope, of why you live a different kind of lifestyle, why you talk differently, why you act differently. You were living a sanctified life because we are sanctified. We don't become more holy. We are holy. And so in our lifestyle and how we behave, we want to live out who we are. And that's what Peter is referring to in First Peter. He's not talking about us becoming holy and make yourself holy. We can't do that. If we could, we don't need the blood of Christ. We need the blood of Christ to be completely forgiven of all sin and to be fully cleansed of all sin. And the blood of Christ has done that in the new covenant. All right. So we're looking at reasons that Jesus became man. And we saw that Jesus became man last week to bring salvation. Jesus became fully human to bring restoration. Jesus became fully human to bring sanctification. And now we see that Jesus became fully human to bring liberation. And this is in Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. And it says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, now that goes right back up to the verse we read previously, which is in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 2. And again, I will put my trust in him. That would be in Isaiah 8, 18, where he says, and again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. That's Hebrews 2, 13. So the children there refer to humanity, humanity, not believers, but humanity in a general sense, because in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, children are identified as humanity, which reads, since the children have flesh and blood, that's humanity, Jesus too shared in their humanity. So children is equal to humanity in these verses. Jesus became fully human. He shared in our humanity. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. He became completely human. All these verses reference the humanity of Jesus. And it says here another reason why Jesus became completely human. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's humanity, Jesus too shared in their humanity. Jesus was flesh and blood. So that by his death, by the death of Jesus, he might break the power of him, that's the devil, who holds the power of death. Then verse 15, and free, that's where liberation comes from, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus came to liberate people from the fear of death. Remember, when Adam sinned, God said, if you eat of the tree, you will die. And we do see that the, that the physical death set into the human race and people begin to die physically. And we see in Romans 5, 12 through 21, the process of sin entering into the human race and the process of death happening with humans. But Jesus came to set people free, to liberate people from the fear of death. And, and that's the greatest fear of humanity is the fear of death. I mean, we're looking right now at a pandemic. What's driving so much fear in this pandemic? It's the fear of death. People are afraid of dying. So much fear has people in bondage through this pandemic because people are afraid of dying. And I'm not saying we should treat the pandemic lightly and not take it seriously, but we just want to see what's driving so much emotions behind the pandemic is the fear of death. People are afraid of dying. If you think about when Adam sinned and Adam and Eve hid from God, remember God came looking for Adam and Eve and they hid from God and God asked a question. He said to Adam, Adam, where are you? And God knew where they were. And notice Adam's answer. Adam said, God, we hid from you because we were afraid. The first emotion to enter the human race after the fall of humanity, when humanity was plunged into death and darkness, the very first emotion that Adam references when he communicates to God is, I hid from you, God, because I was afraid. When sin entered the human race, fear entered the human race. And fear drives so much of 
what we do and decisions that we make and how we feel and, and how we live our lives. The greatest fear that controls us or has the power to control us if people allow it to control them is the fear of death. Nobody wants to die. People don't go out for coffee and talk about death. That's not a thought that we even want to entertain. We will put that thought out of our mind and most of humanity ignores their deaths. They don't want to think about dying. They ignore dying and, and they'll just put it out of their mind because they know it's coming and nobody's excited that it's coming. And most of humanity has no idea what's going to happen when they die. And, and they live with a subtle sense of fear of dying. And it's subtle simply because they choose to ignore it, but it's really there. Jesus came to liberate people from the fear of death. How did he do that? He died our death. Remember the verse we just read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus experienced death for everyone. That the penalty for sin is death. And Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took our death upon himself. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. In Jesus' life. All right, so in Jesus, we read about, again, this in, in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Jesus brings eternal life. Remember when Mary and Martha were upset because their brother Lazarus had died, and Lazarus had been dead several days, and Jesus finally makes it back to where he's buried and the tomb that he's in, and Mary and, and Martha are upset with Jesus. You know, if you would have come sooner, Jesus, then Lazarus would have not died. And they were crying. They were already mourning his death. And Jesus calls him out of the tomb. And Jesus says these words in John eleven twenty five. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. He who believes in me will live forever even though he dies. So what he's talking about there, even though we die physically, we're going to live with him forever because we find out, for example, in Ephesians chapter two, that we've been made alive with Christ. Paul said, if I die, I'm going to go to be with the Lord. Paul understood that even though his physical body dies, he's going to live forever with Jesus. That's why Jesus can say in John eleven twenty five. He who believes in me will never die, even though he dies, because he's, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we're identified with Christ in his crucifixion. That's complete forgiveness. And we're also identified with Christ in his resurrection. That's eternal life that we have. And so that's why Paul writes, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he talks about we don't grieve like the rest of those who have no hope, because we believe that when Jesus returns, that our loved ones who have died are going to return with him, and those who are still on the earth will be caught up in the air, and we'll return together with Christ. We have a living hope because of the resurrection, and that's part of the new covenant, this New Testament message, and not about books. It's about blood. It's about the crucifixion. It's about the resurrection, and it's about all that we have in Christ so that we don't have to be held captive our entire lives and controlled by the fear of death. Jesus came to set people free, to liberate people from the fear of death. And he did that by becoming fully human. And he died our death for us. He was risen from the dead. And now he lives in us. And in him, we have eternal life. So not only in reason number four, did Jesus become fully human to bring liberation, but reason number five is Jesus became fully human to bring propitiation. Hebrews 2.17 says this, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them. That's humanity. That's, this is another reference to Jesus being fully human in Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. We'll look at that momentarily. But right now, I want us to look at the next part of this verse, that he might make atonement, or propitiation for the sins of the people. 
Atonement is not a good translation that the NIV uses. A better word in our English language to capture what the Greek word is actually saying there is not atonement, it's propitiation. A lot of, lot of Bible translations will use propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's in Romans chapter 3, I think around maybe verse 24, 25. John in 1 John chapter 2 says Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the world. All right. What's the difference between atonement and propitiation? Atonement means to cover temporarily. Propitiate means to take away eternally. And here's the difference between atonement and propitiation. If I go out to eat with a friend, and let's say I forget my wallet, and I have no money to pay for a meal, and my friend says, hey, Brad, I've got you covered. I'll, I'll pay for your meal. You just pay me back later. Well, he didn't propitiate the payment for my meal. He atoned for the payment of my meal, meaning I'm going to cover your payment temporarily, but ultimately you have to pay me back. Jesus didn't atone for our sins because if Jesus would have atoned for our sins, it would have meant this. Hey, Brad, I'm going to cover your sins like the animals did in Leviticus for a short time, but ultimately you're going to have to pay for your own sin penalty. That would be atonement. Jesus didn't come to atone for sins. That was what the animals did under the law of Moses. Jesus came to propitiate sins, which means to totally pay our sin debt in full which he completely did at the cross. Remember John said about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who propitiates the sins of the world, the sin of the world. He, he, he paid the sin debt for everybody in the world. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus tasted death for everyone. He died for everyone's sin debt. That's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians five nineteen that God's not counting our sins against us. Why not? Because all of our sins were counted against Jesus. That's why Paul can write in Colossians chapter 2, I think it's around verse 14, where he says that all of our sins were nailed to the cross, meaning our sins were propitiated at the cross. The sin debt was paid in full. And people will talk about that. You'll hear pastors talking about the debt was nailed to the cross nailed to the cross. It is finished. It is paid for in full. That's propitiation. Another example of atonement and propitiation would be this. Let's say I go to uh, academy and I buy a new pair of shoes and I don't have any money, so I put it on a credit card. Well, the credit card is only atoning for that payment. The credit card company is not paying for my shoes. The credit card company is covering the payment for our, my shoes until somebody else makes the payment. Whether I make that payment or somebody else makes that payment, the credit card company still wants to be paid for covering the payment for the shoes, whether I pay it or someone else pays it. Well, the animals during the Old Covenant time, during the time of the Old Testament, were like a credit card. That the blood of animals covered the sins of people until somebody made the permanent, complete, full payment for sins. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the sin debt for all of humanity, reaching all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve, and all the way forward to the last person commits the very last sin. All the sins of the world were placed upon Christ at one time in history, that's what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to convince his Jewish audience of. And as we read it, we want to become convinced of this as well, that Jesus became the full, the full sacrifice for all sins and the final sacrifice for all sins forever. That's why when a person places his or her faith in Jesus, they experience 100% forgiveness for all sins for the rest of their lives. We're forgiven and we're cleansed from all sin. We're made holy because our sins have been propitiated or paid in full at the cross. My friend who, if we went out to eat, right, and if he propitiated my meal, it would mean this. Hey, Brad, I'm going to pay for your meal. I'm going to pay for it in full, and you owe me nothing. You owe me absolutely nothing because I'm paying for your meal in full. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus paid our sin debt in full. 
there's no debt left to be paid. He paid it in full. That's the difference between propitiation and atonement. Look at this verse one more time with that understanding. Jesus became fully human to bring propitiation. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, that's the human race, fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, we're going to do that in just a minute, and he became fully human so that he might make, not atonement, so not the right translation there, so that he might make propitiation, the full payment for our sins, so that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people, fully taking away humanity's sin penalty and sin payment, which means this, your sins have been propitiated. My sins have been propitiated. God's not dealing with us on the basis of forgiven and unforgiven sin anymore. God's not counting our sins against us. They were all nailed to the cross. That's the good news of the New Testament. That's the good news of the blood of Christ and what he's, he's done for us at the cross. And beginning to see ourselves as people whose sins have been propitiated means I'm seeing myself as a person who is fully forgiven forever, who is fully righteous and fully holy. And I fail to see myself and my sins of being, as being fully propitiated when I constantly seek God's forgiveness, when I constantly ask for God's forgiveness. I'm failing to see this portion of this new covenant, of this New Testament, that Jesus became fully human so that he might propitiate our sins, which he did. He did in full. And I, and I know that I'm living in the new covenant. I know that I'm experiencing this New Testament in the blood of Christ when I'm living as a person who is aware that my sins have been propitiated, fully forgiven forever. So rather than asking God for forgiveness, I'm aware that I am forgiven, and appreciation then flows from my heart to God's heart because of the forgiveness that he's given me because Jesus propitiated all my sins. I hope that's clear. I hope that makes sense, and I hope it's really helpful to you as you begin to understand more deeply and more fully this new Testament or this new covenant that's been established by the blood of Christ and that you and I relate to God in. Well, let's look at the final reason that we see in Hebrews of why Jesus became fully human. This is reason number six. Jesus became fully human to relate to our limitations and our temptations. This is Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, that's humanity, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, because he himself suffered, this is verse 18 of Hebrews 2, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So now we see that Jesus became fully human to relate to our limitations and our temptations. Look at this verse. Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Now, remember, this was written to a Jewish audience in the first century who understood completely what a high priest was. They understood what the priest was. They understood the role of the high priest and the role of the priest based upon Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. And they had been relating to God, their family, for over 1,500 years, them, them personally, for the years they were alive on earth. And they were relating to God through high priests that were just like them. And he's seeking to convince this Jewish audience that the work of the high priest in the book of Leviticus is done. The work of the high priest in the book of Deuteronomy is over. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is now obsolete in the, to this original audience. That your high priest now, the one you relate to God through now, is not of the tribe of Levi, Leviticus, Levi. It's, 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 of, it's of Jesus. We, we relate to God through Jesus. He's the high priest now. He's the one that you relate to God through now. And this high priest that you relate to God through now has established a new covenant, a new testament in his blood. And it says here, 
that Jesus was made fully like us so that he could become a merciful, a merciful and faithful high priest. What does that mean? It means this. The word mercy there is compassion, empathy, sympathy, that, that he could understand what it's like to be us. Unless Jesus stepped out of heaven to earth, unless Jesus, as God, became human, then he wouldn't know what it was like to be human. And so in order to, to know what it's like to be you and to know what it's like to be me, he had to become fully human in every single way so that when we go through our hardships and we go through our difficulties and we go through our pain and our problems and our weaknesses and our struggles, Jesus can say, I get you. I understand what it's like to be you. That's merciful. That's compassion. I feel what you feel. I felt what you feel now. When you think about the life that Jesus lived, Jesus was attacked by people. He was abused by people. He was accused of things he never did by people. He was abandoned by people. He was beat. He was hit. He was whipped. He was spit on. He was rejected. Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows, a man of deep pain, and a man of deep hurt. Deep hurt. You know, we watch these movies sometimes about Jesus, and some of these movies portray Jesus as kind of this happy-go-lucky, always smiling person. To me, that's Jesus was the very opposite of how many of these movies about Jesus and these shows about Jesus portray Jesus. I don't see that in Scripture. I see Jesus weighed down. That's why he had to trust God every day. Because he was, he, was, he was going through so much as a human being in every way, and all the pain, and all the hurt, and all the heartache. From a child, the, the, the Romans were chasing him down, trying to kill him. He had to flee to Egypt with Mary and Joseph. So from a child, and, and even, you know, you see Jesus in these shows being the good-looking Jesus. Well, Isaiah tells us there was nothing in his appearance that would attract somebody to him. Jesus wasn't the most handsome of men that we tend to see on these shows. Jesus went through humanity and all of, all of the human pain that we experience, so he would know what it's like to be us. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. So not only can Jesus identify with us in our limitations as, as humans, but he can identify with us in our temptations. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, but Jesus was without sin. So he knows what it's like to be us. So we find out in Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is un unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who knows exactly what it's like to be us because he became one of us and he experienced humanity's pain to its worst degree. Verse 15 of Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And then verse 16, Let us then, because Jesus knows what it's like to be human, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer, Jesus knows what it's like to have human limitations, Jesus knows what it's like to have human temptations, because of that, in verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Now, this had to be mind-blowing to the original audience. We're very familiar with Hebrews 4.16. But to this Jewish audience who had been living under the law for their entire lives and their family for 1,500 years, dating back at least to the time of Moses as far as law goes, this idea of coming before God in grace had to be mind-blowing for them because their way of relating to God was sacrificing animals. Their way of relating to God was trying to get forgiven, trying to be forgiven, trying to stay forgiven, trying to stay in fellowship, trying to get holy before God. They were working at trying to relate to God. They weren't resting. They couldn't rest under the law in the finished work of Christ. What the writer of Hebrews is seeking to do is, is take this Jewish audience who's been trying under the law to be forgiven, stay forgiven, be holy, stay holy, be righteous, 
and then they sin and sacrifice animals. He's trying to get them to leave that life behind, to leave law behind, and come to grace. And in grace, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man, Jesus, is full of grace, and he knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to hurt. No more pretending, no more trying no more trying to earn anything. We come to the throne of grace now. We come to unconditional love is what that means. We come to unmerited kindness. And we come based upon who we are. You know, I was taught sin makes you out of fellowship with God. And you got to make sure all your sins are confessed so you can stay in fellowship with God. But what that prevented me from doing was being real with God, being open with God, being transparent with God. God was not a God of grace when I was under that religious system that taught me when you sin, you're out of fellowship with God, because what they're telling me is your sins have not been propitiated. Your sins have not all been dealt with. Your sins can cause a barrier between you and God. Whereas I began seeing in Scripture that, all my sins were nailed to the cross. All my sins were propitiated at the cross. God's not counting my sins against me anymore. That's the new covenant. That's the New Testament that we live in. And, and I begin to see, well, now I can be honest with God. Rather than living in fear that somehow I'm out of fellowship with Him, and have I failed to confess all my sins? Have I missed one? And always fearing I'm out of fellowship with God and wondering if I'm in fellowship or bouncing in and out of fellowship. I begin to see that I relate to God in grace. I have one in Jesus who became fully human, who knows what it's like to be me. He knows what it's like to have the limitations that I have. He knows what it's like to have the temptations that I have. He knows what it's like to go through the trials that, that I go through. And therefore, rather than living my life thinking I'm out of fellowship with God, I now can be completely honest and open and transparent and real and finally have an authentic relationship with God, which is what the New Testament is designed to bring us into. And again, not books, but the blood of Christ. Because remember, in this New Testament, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8 quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and in this new covenant, says God will know them from the least to the greatest. And the foundation of the new covenant is God remembers our sins no more. I can't move into knowing God if I'm still concentrating on getting forgiveness. I can't move into this new covenant. If I'm still trying to get forgiveness of sins and stay in fellowship with God by constant confession, I'm a believer who's not functioning in this new covenant or in this new testament. But once I can say, okay, God's not counting my sins against me. He remembers my sins no more. That's the foundation of the New Testament. Then I can move into, and he knows them from the least to the greatest. The heart of God is to know me. The heart of God is to know you, your limitations, your temptations, your trials. And only when I understand that I relate to God in grace and you understand that you, you come to grace when you come to God. You come to unconditional love. You come to unmerited kindness. And you come before God having all your sins propitiated by the blood of Jesus. You are holy before God. You are righteous. You are cleansed. You are clean before God. Now you and I can be totally honest and open and transparent and real with God. And we don't have to be like Adam where God would say, hey, Brad, where are you? Well, God, I'm hiding from you because I'm afraid that I'm out of fellowship with you because of my sins. And now we're beginning to understand I don't have to hide from God anymore because all my sins have been propitiated and I've been cleansed and forgiven and I'm righteous and holy before God, which now I can be 100% honest and transparent and real with God. Well, this is the New Testament. This is the new covenant. This is what Jesus established in his blood for us. He became human so that you and I could walk in relationship with God, fully convinced of our salvation and our sins have been forgiven and we're holy before God. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. 
I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.